Good morning again, New Breed. It is, it is good to be back with you. I'm excited to be back with you. I know it's only been a week, but it's been, uh, for probably most of us, a, a busy week. Somewhat of a fun week, I hope, um, as you've gotten to enjoy friends and, and family. But I hope you all had a great Christmas. I hope all of you watching had a great Christmas. I hope that you enjoyed your family. And most importantly, I hope that you... You celebrated the fact that our king has come to rescue sinners, amen? I mean, that, that's what Christmas is all about, that our, our God is a God who, even as we just read, who steps down, who comes low, who sought after us. Actually, I watched a little video this week, and it's about a minute long, and I'd, I'd seen it before and just forgotten about it, but it's of, of Pastor David Platt, and it's a minute long, and it's an amazing short, sweet gospel presentation, but he tells a story of how he was in another country and he was sitting with two other individuals, both of them from different faiths, and they were, they were talking with him and trying to communicate that, listen, at, at the end of the day, we might worship different gods, but we're all worshiping the same thing. That's kind of what they were saying. And, and, and Dr. Platt said to him, he said, you know, it sounds to me like you see our faiths or, or, or see kind of God at the top of this mountain and you might be coming up this way, this is what he said, and he said, you know, you might be coming up this way, I'm coming up this way, but at the end of the day, we all, we all get there, we all get to the same place. And they were like, yeah, that's it, that's exactly right. And, and David Platt said that he responded and said, you know, the difference is that I believe that God didn't stay on the mountaintop and that he came down to reach us, that he came down to rescue us, and that's the fundamental difference is that our God is a God who is not far from us, but he is near. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And so I hope that you were able to celebrate the fact that, that our king has come to rescue sinners. You know, in this morning, we're, we're going to be coming to a close on our series of biblical friendship. Uh, I'll give you a quick kind of direction on where we're going. So, so next week, Lord willing, uh, as we gather together next year, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to preach a message that hopefully kind of looks back a little at the year that has been and looks forward to the year that's coming. And, and I just want to even now encourage you and ask you to be praying for me because uh, the Lord is laying on my heart and has been um, what could be a tough message, uh, a challenging one, and one that if I'm just being transparent with you guys right now, I don't really want to preach. Um, but I think it's needed as as we look back, but we also press on to what's ahead, and so um, I'm excited about it, but excited to see what the Lord's going to do, but it's, it's potentially going to be a challenging message, but that's where we're going to be next week. The following week, uh, Pastor Lance will be bringing us the word, uh, and then after he preaches to us here in a few weeks into January, we're going to begin a new series through another book of the Bible, and we'll announce that next week where we're going. Uh, and so to give you a few weeks to kind of read and to prep and to get ready for that. But again, this morning, we're going to close out this series on biblical friendship. And I hope and I pray that this series has pressed on you to consider in a deeper way your need for one another, our need for one another. You know, to some degree, I do think that it's rather providential that this series has occurred in the midst of a season where it is very difficult for us to be together. And, and honestly, I'm somewhat thankful for that because I believe and I hope that it's aided in showing you how hard it is to live life outside of community. 
You know, I'm here every week. And for the past few months, it's been a blessing. There have been a few of you here. There are a few of you here this morning as we gather. Uh, But most of you have been watching online. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have the technology to do that. But even though I'm here and still able to gather with a few of you every Sunday, I feel so disconnected from so many of you. And it's been tough. And for me, this series has pressed upon my heart the need to cultivate some deeper friendships with those that I'm already walking in friendship with. And I hope, I truly do, that the same can be said of you. Because as the Bible teaches in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one person sharpens another. We, we need one another to look more like Jesus. And the work of looking like Jesus will play itself out in deep friendships. We do. We need one another to look more like Jesus. And the hard work of looking like Jesus will play itself out in deep friendships. And so throughout this series, uh, we've tried to, in a limited way, I know it hasn't been kind of a, a full discussion of biblical friendship. There's so many different avenues we could go down. But we've tried to, in some way, in a, in a, though limited, cover all of our bases. And so we began by laying this foundation of friendship by first and foremost examining the truth that we are built for friendship, right? It's hardwired into who we are as image bearers. But not only that, we talked about how we're built for friendship, but also that in Christ, biblical friendship is a part of our ministry. We said that biblical friendship is ministry. Excuse me for a minute. You know, those two sermons that we are built for friendship and that biblical friendship is ministry, they they laid the groundwork on which we've been trying to build. And they reminded us, listen to me, that we are not being faithful to the God who has made us to be like him. If we are not being faithful or and we are not being faithful in our calling to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are not pursuing and involved in deep, meaningful biblical friendship. I mean, that's a weighty statement. In light of those two messages, that we are not being faithful to the God whose image we are made in, and we are not being faithful to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, walking in a manner worthy of the calling which we have received, if we are not pursuing deep, meaningful, biblical friendship. But from there, we began to look at what it will take to pursue this type of friendship. And so we spent a few weeks on this. We talked about two ways that we place ourselves in a position to be and receive this type of friendship. We talked about the fact that biblical friendship will never occur without humility and intentionality. Humility and intentionality. And humility, that we talked about, that's that's the posture from which we are ready to open our lives to others. That we're ready to receive biblical friendship. And intentionality, you remember pushing past platitudes to purposeful pursuit, that's the means by which we pursue other people. So in other words, humility makes us ready to receive friendship, and intentionality is how we pursue friendship. And from there, we began a couple weeks ago, prior to, to Christmas, evaluating our friendships. And we began to talk about six marks of biblical friendship, six marks of biblical friendship. Friendship, And if you remember back a couple weeks ago in the introduction of that sermon, uh, I, I shared with you a portion of a sermon from Charles Spurgeon where he was preaching about true friendship. And, and as he was speaking, he said that 
Speaking of a true friend, Spurgeon preached that when thou hast found such a man, when you found a father and to thee, Spurgeon said, grapple him to thyself with hooks of steel and never let him go. Right? So, so sink your hooks into people who are true biblical friends and never let them go. And we began talking about the fact that these marks are not only evidence of true friendship, but they are the means by which we sink our hooks deep into someone. They're, they're the means by which we can have this type of friendship that both satisfies the soul and spurs us on to look like Jesus. And if we want friendships, as, as J.C. Ryle says, that have our sorrows and double our joys, these six marks must be present. And so two weeks ago, as we began, we, we looked at the first three marks of biblical friendship. The first three marks of biblical friendship. The first one being, I'm just going to review for you, the first one being affection. When we talked about how this affection, right, it's, it's more than just merely liking someone. It's more than enjoying the same things as someone else. It is a genuine love for someone that flows out of our love for God. And it is a, an affection that doesn't just change our emotions, but it changes how we are willing to live. And if you remember, we talked a little bit about Jonathan and David, how we saw that, how Jonathan loved David as much as he loved himself, so much so that he was willing to change how he lived his life. And we saw that by the fact that Jonathan made a covenant of friendship with David. But then, then we talked about the second mark being constancy. You remember a friendship that is not fickle, a friendship that is not easily exited, and it endures even through the most difficult seasons. And again, we looked at, at Jonathan and David and, and saw that to be true, where there came a point in their friendship where Jonathan's father, King Saul, wanted to kill David. And, and David wasn't sure if this friendship was going to hold up. And he began to, to, to challenge Jonathan and say, listen, you, you got to tell me if, if your dad's going to kill me. You, how do I know that you're not going to turn your back on me? And what we saw was Jonathan standing on the covenant that he had made with David and being a constant friend, even in a difficult season. But then the last mark that we talked about two weeks ago, the third mark was transparency. And we talked a little bit about transparency being willing to, to let people into the deepest recesses of our pain, to let them into our struggle, to let them into our sin, but also to let them into our great joys and our triumphs. Letting people in. We talked about how this mark specifically is somewhat unique to believers. Because as I mentioned, you know, you, you have some lost people that can show a genuine affection as best as they can. You, you have some people outside of the faith who can be constant friends. We hear about it all the time of, of, of individuals who don't know Jesus but have been friends since kindergarten and remain friends until their dying breath. But, but this idea of transparency, it's somewhat unique to believers because only believers care about diving into the sinful parts of our lives, of overcoming, of growing in holiness. And we, we stressed two weeks ago that if we have 
all the other marks of friendship, if we have the other five marks, but this one is absent, this willingness to be transparent, our friendships will inevitably fall short of what God has for us. Our struggle, our sin, our burdens, hear me, they were never meant to be carried alone. Never. I'm going to say that again because somebody needs to hear that, that, that our burdens, our struggles, our sins, they were never meant to be carried alone. And this will require vulnerability, but it's worth it. And so what we want to do this morning is finish examining these marks of a biblical friendship. And we're going to look at the last three marks. And as with the first three that we talked about, this sermon will be a little bit different from what I normally preach. It's going to be a little more topical in nature. We're going to jump around Scripture a bit. But my aim is is to still continue to ground these points in Scripture. I don't want you to think that... These points are just my great ideas. I think you can argue these six marks of biblical friendship from Scripture, and that's what I hope to do this morning. So let's dive in, and here is the fourth mark of a biblical friendship. The fourth mark of a biblical friendship is honesty. The fourth mark of biblical friendship is honesty. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27. And you know, Proverbs 27 is, is an interesting proverb because what it does overall is it notes for us the genuineness of love. It, it, it shares what genuine love looks like. And so riddled throughout the 27th chapter of the book of Proverbs are examples of what faithful love will consist of. And I want you to look at what it says specifically there in verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6, it says, Better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. So let's, let's break that down a little first. It says, Better an open reprimand than concealed love. And what God is communicating to us there is that our love will involve action. Right, The affection that we, we are to have for one another, that first mark of biblical friendship, it will demand action. And even if that action, even if that love brings with it temporary pain. One commentator notes this. He says that if a person's love is genuine, he will not fear to tell his friend about a fault or correct him. Rebuking is to be preferred to hidden love. In other words... Correct a person's, correcting a person's fault is an evidence of love. But failing to correct him shows one's love is withdrawn. I love how he says that, that, it's, that a rebuke is better than hidden love. And what he means by hidden love is a love that is unwilling to step in when they see faults, when they see errors in someone, when they see sin present in someone. Life, love demands action, and part of this action will inevitably be honesty. Specifically, when we see faults and sin in a person's life, we will be honest when we see a lack of wisdom or discernment. We will speak into one's life for their good. Again, all of this flowing from our first mark of a biblical friendship. 
All of this flowing from a real and genuine affection for a person. Because I'm going to tell you, confronting someone in their sin will not go well if you don't have a real love for that person. But notice what it says next. So as we go on in Proverbs 27, verse 6, it says, The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. Man, that's a challenging word, isn't it? The wounds of a friend are trustworthy. And what this speaks to is when we receive hard words from our friends, words that are flowing out of love, but words that are hard to hear. And what, what, what God is trying to remind us here is that it is better to experience temporary hurt from a friend seeking our good than long-term ruin because no one would be honest with us. It is better to experience temporary hurt from a friend seeking our good than long-term ruin because no one would be honest. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to be biblical friends, we have to be ready to give and prepared to listen when someone speaks tough words to us. And again, this will require great humility. I want you to know I have no one in mind when I say this. So if, if this kind of pricks at you, know it's not coming from me, but maybe the Holy Spirit. Listen, it says something about you if no one can confront you. Doesn't say something about them. It says something about you if no one can confront you. It says something about you if you cannot accept healthy challenges. Right? If your response whenever someone points out a fault or a failure is to cut them off, to declare they just don't get it, they don't understand, they're wrong. If you can never hear a word pressing you and challenging you and confronting you, it says more about you than it does about anyone else because every one of us needs this. I need it. You need it. We need to be challenged and pressed. And if we think we've got it all right... We're showing that we have no true humility. It is better to have a friend who wounds temporarily than a thousand friendly people who will never push us to be more like Jesus. Part of the reason we need this is because the counsel of others is better than the counsel that we can give ourselves. Do you know that? Scripture teaches us that. That the counsel of others is better than the counsel we can give ourselves. A few verses later in Proverbs 27, 9, it says, Oil and incense bring joy to the heart, and the sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. Do you know why it's better than self-counsel? Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. And even in Christ, we're still battling the flesh. We're still battling our pride and others looking in, fighting for our good and fighting for our holiness can honestly come at our lives with more objectivity than we can. And so the counsel of other people is needed. We need people speaking into our lives and being honest and pressing us, again, out of a heart that loves us. It is a mark of love. When a friend can disagree and push you towards what is right 
and holy. It's a mark of love. And the reason I stress that is that's really important for us to remember because that's not how the world typically understands love. Right? Try disagreeing with someone in the world right now. Like we, we have encounters with people, my wife and I all the time, we have encounters with people in our own family at times who we say, listen, we disagree with your life, but we love you. And those two things just don't seem to go together with them. Because in the world, love typically means, listen, you let me do what I want to do. You let my truth be my truth. And what's most loving is for you to support me no matter what. Always be there for me. The problem with that is we can pursue some really foolish things. And the last thing we need is people praising us as we do it. But you can love and disagree. You can love and disagree. We see this in Scripture. I mean, take the example, right, of Peter and Paul. We see an example of being able to disagree and still hold a deep love and respect for one another. Because do you remember what happened in Galatians chapter 2? So in Galatians chapter 2, if you don't remember, Paul confronts Peter about something. Right? Peter comes and he's eating with Gentiles. He's fellowshipping with Gentiles. He's acting in that moment as if he understands, and I think he truly did, that salvation is not about keeping the, the, the Jewish laws. It's not about the food laws. It's not about the ceremonial laws. That, that salvation is about placing your faith and your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Peter is fellowshipping with the Jews. But then, do you remember what happened? Or he's fellowshipping with the Gentiles and, and then, then some Jews show up. And Peter kind of reverts back to his old ways. And what we see with him, honestly, is, is, is ethnocentrism play itself out, where he believes that his Jewish heritage is superior to that of the Gentiles. And he starts placing a burden on the Gentiles. And as he does that, he leads other people astray as well. And so Paul hears about this. And Paul has something to say about it. And Paul says, I, I can that, that I confronted him to his face because he stood condemned because he had offended the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says to Peter. And then my dude wrote it in Scripture. So it wasn't just like he confronted Peter. He recorded it for all the saints for all time to see. Now, in most relationships here in this world, I mean, that was here in this world as well, but here and now, we would write somebody off on the spot for that. You confronted me publicly in front of other people. You called out my sin. How dare you? But Paul's aim wasn't to get Peter. His aim was for him to be holy. But what's amazing to me is how Peter speaks of Paul nearly 13 years later when, Paul, when Peter writes 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter. Getting them confused. When Peter, that's, that's why I got to write it in my notes and not go off my head. 13 years after Galatians 2 was written. So, so likely this event took place even before that because the event had to take place before Paul could write it in Galatians 2. But we know at least 13 years later, listen to what Peter says about Paul in 2 Peter 3 verses 14 and 15. He says, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given him. Notice 
how Peter calls Paul a dear brother and acknowledges his wisdom and that the Lord has saved him and worked mightily in his life. Paul and Peter are an example of this truth of honesty and being willing to confront and get out of love in such a way that it doesn't destroy a relationship, but it makes it stronger down the road. And it pushed Peter towards holiness. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. But do you know what is an even greater picture of this than Peter and Paul? This is how God interacts with us. Our God is always honest with us for our good. And can we be honest? At times it hurts. Right? Romans 3.23 is hard. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a hard word that God speaks to us. The beginning of Romans 6.23, that's a hard word that God speaks to us. For the wages of sin is death. Matthew 7.21-23, this is a hard word that Jesus speaks. That not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, lawlessness, I never knew you. That's a hard word. Right? When God says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? That's a hard word. When, when, when God says to think more of others than you do of yourself, that is a hard word. God has said hard things to us, things that challenge our sensibilities and how we want to live. But it has always been for our good. And even God's call to biblical friendship can be difficult for some of us. Some of us want to live on an island. Some of us like our isolation, right? We, we go to our, we're introverts. We just want to be by ourselves. And so even God calling you to biblical friendship, for some of you that's a hard word, but it is for your good. God has always been honest with us. And we should long to be honest like God in our relationships with our friends. So the fourth mark of biblical friendship is honesty. Here's, here's the fifth mark. The fifth mark of biblical friendship is empathy. Empathy. So we've got affection, we've got constancy, we've got transparency, we've got honesty, and now the fifth mark is empathy. Flip ahead to Romans chapter 12. To Romans chapter 12. And I want to begin reading in verse 10. And I want to read through verse, verse 16. Look at, listen to what Paul writes here. He says, Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Then verse 15, he says, 
Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And verse 15 there gives us a beautiful picture of what empathy is. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I want you to listen to what Drew Hunter writes in his book, Made for Friendship, as he speaks of empathy. He says, empathy is the ability to understand and adjust to someone's emotional state. It is the capacity to enter his mind, to peer out at the world through his eyes. Empathetic friends weep with friends who weep and rejoice with friends who rejoice. We understand how they feel and why they feel it, and we also feel it with them. Sympathy or I'm sorry, empathy, shapes the whole tone of a relationship. Without it, we trade honoring friends for one-upping them. We trade affirmation for sarcasm. We trade talking with for talking at. We trade listening to sorrows for changing the subject. You see, empathy is different than sympathy. Sympathy is when we feel sorry for someone. And there is a place for sympathy at times. I'm not saying that sympathy is a bad thing, but it's different than empathy. Sympathy is feeling bad for someone when, someone happen, when something bad happens, right? It's, it's, for, it's for feeling a particular way about the person. But empathy, empathy changes the game a little bit because empathy is not about feeling a certain way about the person. Empathy is all about feeling with the person. Feeling what they feel, rejoicing in what they rejoice at. Like it says in verse 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Not to rejoice for those who rejoice or to weep for those who weep, but to rejoice with them, to weep with them. It's to step into someone's life in such a deep way that their pain becomes your pain. That their joy becomes your joy. See, see, that's the kind of friendship that God is pushing us to. This, this speaks to pursuing people with such depth that you not only share time with each other, but you share emotions with one another. You feel what they feel. You know, the best picture, I was trying to think of an illustration of this, and the best picture that I, I could come up with is that of a healthy parent-child relationship. And I say healthy because I understand that not every parent-child relationship was like this, but I think the best example I can give is a healthy parent-child relationship, and maybe you have experienced it, either as a child or as a parent, right? So as a parent, I understand empathy better than I ever thought I would. Again, it's different than sympathy. It's not feeling a particular way about my children, it's thinking a particular way with my children. But as a parent, I understand empathy, honestly, more than I ever thought I could. Because there is such a depth in the relationship that I have with my children that when they hurt, I hurt. Like I physically hurt with them. Just recently, we, you know, my, my kids are taking after me in the sense of I got, I got injured a lot as a child. A lot of broken bones, some stitches here and there. I think my wife was pretty much the same way. One of her stories is right after she'd broken her arm and gotten her cast, 
she was found doing front flips off the deck into a snowbank in Minnesota. So I guess the apple doesn't far fall from the tree. But just recently, I had to take Emory to the hospital. It was one of those everything that could go wrong went wrong situations. Aaliyah was at the dentist, so I was home by myself with Emory and Thea. Of course, Dad's home by himself, right? And so Emory takes a tumble off the top of our front porch, goes down the side of the steps, managed to catch the corner of the concrete steps on her ribs. Uh, I mean, swelled up like a balloon immediately. And the sobs, like parents, you know the different sobs of your kids. Like this one was one that was like, gut-wrenching for me. Uh, so shout out to Wes Hartgrove, who lives next street over, who came and chilled with Thea so I could rush her to the hospital. And as we were driving, and as she is just crying out in pain, I, I vividly remember my body just hurting with her. Like, I'm fighting back tears. Like, I am, like, on the verge of just losing it. I, I, I can just sense that pain. I know she's struggling. But it's not just pain as a parent. There have been moments as my daughters have grown when they have accomplished something that has been vexing them for so long. Parents, you know that, right? They finally do that one thing that they've been wanting to do. They've been trying and trying and they just can't get it. And then when your child overcomes, they triumph the joy that they experience. And you as a parent experience it right along with them. I have never got so hyped over the dumbest things before. But I'm like... This must be what it feels like when Jesus is going to come back. Right? Like, I'm pumped for them. Their joy becomes my joy. I want everyone to know. I, some of y'all have heard the stories where I'm telling you, guess what Emery did? Guess what Thea did? And you're like, okay. But for me, I'm like, the world has shifted. I want to celebrate with them. I want to rejoice with them. I have wept with them. But see, that kind of depth is not only reserved for parent-child relationships. That's the kind of depth that God is calling us to, even with our friends. But, but notice what is required to be a type of person who weeps and rejoices with others. We see the first clue there in Romans 12.10. The verse we started reading with where it says, Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. So right here you have kind of at the start that if we're ever going to rejoice with those who rejoice, if we're ever going to weep with those who weep, it begins with a real love for those people. Again, the first mark of biblical friendship. You see how they're all intertwined. There has to be a real affection, a love, a deep love, even more than you might love yourself. But not only does it require love, it also requires a great humility because look at Romans 12, 16. Kind of the end of what we read. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. If we're ever going to rejoice with those who rejoice, if we're ever going to weep with those who weep, if we are ever going to be empathetic friends, it will require love and a great humility. Some of us, if we're honest, are too embarrassed to weep with those who weep. Some of us, if we're honest, are too embarrassed to celebrate with those who celebrate. But a mark of a biblical friendship is empathy. And I just want to say that this empathy should be freeing for us in some ways. Because what it reminds us of is that when a friend is in great sorrow... What they need most is not for you to have all the answers. Listen, no one needs a friend 
who can rationally explain every joy and every sorrow. I had to say that to myself as a husband too, right? Nobody needs a husband because I can do that. I can try to rationalize my, away my wife's sorrow rather than just weeping with her when she weeps. I can rationalize away joys. But the thing is that no one needs a friend who can rationally explain away every joy and every sorrow. People need friends who can be present in and experience alongside them the joys and sorrows of this life. People need friends who can be present in and experience alongside them the joys and sorrows of this life. And it is okay if a friend calls you in great sorrow or great joy and you don't know what to say. Because what they need more than anything, even if they don't know it, is for you to rejoice when they rejoice and to weep when they weep. And what you need more than you may know is not to have all the answers, but to have people in your life who rejoice when you rejoice and who weep when you weep. Because here's the thing, that's what we need from God. God does not give us all the answers. God does not tell us why every pain occurs. He does not give us a clear understanding of why every triumph and joy has come. God doesn't give us all the, the answers, but our God is present with us in the midst of it. Our God weeps with those who weeps and rejoices with those who rejoice. We see this most clearly in the picture of Jesus in Hebrews 4.15. Where it says of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. See, what this tells us is that our God is a God who gets it. He gets our struggle. He gets our sorrow. Jesus knows what it's like to be wrapped in this sinful flesh. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to have loss, to have lost friends and family. Jesus knows what it means to have wept. That's why that verse that we joke about, the shortest verse in all of Scripture, is so powerful. Jesus wept. That speaks so much to the God we serve. He gets us. He doesn't give us every answer, but God steps into our sorrows. He steps into our celebration, and he is in the midst of all of it. And so what we're called to is to be like him. Just like our God steps in and rejoices and weeps with his children, we are called to step in and rejoice and weep with one another. Here is the final mark of biblical friendship. The sixth and final mark of biblical friendship is trust. It's trust. You know, we could go back again to the friendship of David and Jonathan and see how trust is essential. Because in 1 Samuel 18, that's where Jonathan makes that covenant with David. Because he loved him more than he loved himself. And he covenanted with David. And their friendship was a strong friendship. But then a few chapters later, we've already talked about it, chapter 20, 1 Samuel 20. Saul is trying to kill David, Jonathan's father, is trying to kill David. And I don't fault David for this. I really don't. I mean, David asked the question, basically, can I trust you? Right? Can I trust you? Like, if I'm chilling with my friend Carlos and find out his dad wants to kill me, I might ask Carlos the question, can I trust you? 
Like, are you going to set me up? And so David asks the question, and what Jonathan does is he reminds David of the covenant that he has made, not only with him, but in the eyes of the Lord. He understands that his friendship is about more than just the two of them, but it is about their faithfulness to God. And what Jonathan does is reminds David of his trustworthiness. I won't betray you behind your back. Trust that I am for you. Trust that I have your best interest in mind. Jonathan reminds David to trust that he is a friend no matter what. He says, I will hold you in confidence no matter what. Friendship, biblical friendship is based on trust. And we see the necessity of trust throughout Scripture. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28. It says, a contrary person spreads conflict and a, gossip, and a gossip separates close friends. This proverb speaks to the expectation of trustworthiness. Tells us that trust matters. And the idea is that as we, as we pursue depth, as we deal with one another's sins, as we wrestle through the hard things in this life so that we can both look more like Jesus, that we will both be trustworthy with the lives of the person that we are in a relationship with. We are to be good stewards of the people we are in friendship with. So let me just make it really plain. If somebody comes to you and they're wrestling through sin with you, don't run and go tell other people about it. That is an untrustworthy thing to do. Now, again, there's exceptions to those things. There are times people need to step in. You get all that, but you know what I'm saying generally. We want to be trustworthy people. We want to act in the most loving way possible, and we can only do that if we are trustworthy. And what trustworthiness ultimately speaks to is this idea of integrity. Right? Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Integrity matters so much that in Psalm 15, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Lord, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who lives blamelessly, practices righteousness, and acknowledges the truth in his heart. In his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, who does not harm his friend or discredit his neighbor, despises the one rejected by the Lord, but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his word, whatever the cost. So what God basically says is, you want to dwell with me in my holy mountain? You want to dwell in my tent? You have to be a person of integrity. And we praise God, side note, that even though we fail at integrity, there is one who is perfectly right in everything that is integrity and trustworthy, and that's Jesus. But we still strive for this, who does not harm his friend. And I love, I love what it says there at the end of verse 4, who keeps his word whatever the cost. That's trustworthiness. Some translations say, and I love this, that you swear to your own hurt. You know, that's something that I have been trying this past year and a half to live by daily. That if I give my word, I will keep it no matter what. So much so that if me keeping my word means that somebody's going to get hurt, I'd rather it be me that gets hurt than you. If I tell you I'm going to show up somewhere, even if I'm tired, even if I'm exhausted, if I gave you my word, I'd rather me be the one hurt by showing up and putting more stress on myself than by 
canceling on you and leaving you out to dry. I want to be a person that swears to my own hurt. That's a trustworthy person. That's a person of integrity. But what that also means is that we have to be guarded by who we give our word to. It's okay to say no to people. It's okay to say you can't do something. You will cause less damage by saying no than by saying yes and not coming through. That's especially true in friendships. Right? This idea of integrity, this is trustworthiness. And just as integrity and trustworthiness are essential for the Christian life, they are essential for biblical friendship. Just as integrity and trustworthiness are essential for the Christian life, they are essential for biblical friendship. And I'm going to be honest with you. Developing this kind of trust in a friendship, it takes time. That's okay. It takes investment. One of my seminary professors used to say, you've heard me say it before, that relationships are not forged. Or I'm sorry, relationships are forged. They are not forced. You can't force trustworthiness. That's built over time after investing in one another by, by being vulnerable, by being humble, by giving more of yourselves to those you are in friendship with. But these relationships are forged. They're forged in fire. They take time. They can never be forced. And the reason is because, as I said, trustworthiness can take time to prove. But when you find a friend who is trustworthy, again, sink your hooks into them and don't let them go. And once again, the greatest picture of trustworthiness we have is God himself. The greatest of all friends. And he has proven, even though he hasn't needed to, he has proven over and over and over again his trustworthiness. I mean, the entirety of the story of Scripture is a declaration to us that God keeps his word. That what he promised in the garden to restore, when he promised Abraham that he, that, that he would be blessed and that there would be an inheritance that would come through a son and that, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. When he promised Moses that his people would be brought into the promised land. When he promised David that there would be a king who would sit on his throne and it would be established forever. When he promised the prophets that though judgment comes, redemption is extended as well. And even when God went silent in the intertestamental period... God was proving his trustworthiness and what we celebrated last week as Jesus shows up on this earth is that God keeps his word. He is a trustworthy God. And he has secured us and sealed us for the day of his return and we can trust that he is coming back again. Our God is a picture of trustworthiness and it just so happens that our God is the greatest of all friends. And you know what I've tried to do and I hope you've seen this because teaching this way, kind of this, this topical thing, it's not always as comfortable for me, but I have tried to ground everything that we have talked about in the scripture. But more explicitly, I have tried to ground each of these six marks of a biblical friendship. I've tried to tie them to God himself, that God reflects all of these things that we are called to. Our God is a friend to sinners like you and me. And we are invited into that friendship through Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Jesus, when we are friends with God, we experience the affection of God beyond any affection we could ever imagine. That our God is a constant friend to us, never changing, never wavering. That even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. 
That God is transparent in that He has revealed Himself to us and through the Spirit, He reveals to us who we are. And that God will deal with sin. That God is fighting for our holiness. God is honest. He points out sin. He speaks truthfully to us even when it hurts, but we know it is for our good. Our God is a God who celebrates our joys and knows our sorrows. And he is ever present with us. And our God has proven his trustworthiness. So in essence, the question that we have to answer in terms of biblical friendship is not whether or not we want biblical friendship. The question we have to answer is whether or not we want to be like God. Which, just so you know, the purpose of this life is for us to be sanctified, to look more into the image of Jesus. And so to deny biblical friendship is to deny an opportunity to look like our great God and King. Do we want to reflect who He is and how we live and operate in our relationships and friendships, believing that what God has called us to is for our good and will bring Him great glory? Do we want to reflect that? And my prayer has been that we would. Listen to me as we bring this to a close. My prayer throughout this entire series has been that each and every one of us will find and live in these types of friendships. Again, they won't be with everyone and that's okay. But that every one of us, every covenantal member of this family would walk and live in biblical friendship with someone else here. Or more than one person here. Praise God for that. Because brothers and sisters, we need it. It is for our good that God has given us friendship. And hear me, there is a massive portion of our growth as believers that hinges on biblical friendship. There is growth as believers that only takes place in biblical friendship. So my prayer is that we would pursue these kinds of friendships, that we would be this type of friend, and I pray that God would give us grace to walk out these marks of biblical friendship, and indeed we would find these friendships half our sorrows and double our joys. 